Hope you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 11. We'll be reading that here in a moment. <clears throat> we are inching towards the end of this great book. Pray it's been helpful. Right, it's, we're going to finish on a high note next week as we talk about resurrection. But it's helpful to remember some of these lessons that we've seen, right? That though the world goes not well, uh, God is in control. That's one of the themes over and over again in this book. Then, and though we live in exile, we're surrounded by people that don't live like us, uh, that don't believe like us, that don't know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Uh, we're not alone. God is with us in that, those, those places, right? And that's what we saw over and over again, that in the midst of great suffering and injustice, He's right there in the fiery furnace. He's right there with his loved ones in the lion's den. And in the midst of all that, we have our marching orders. We know what to do. That was Jeremiah 29. We kept talking about over and over again. God's planted us here for a purpose. And that purpose is to pray for, to work for, to love, to serve, uh, and work towards the shalom, the peace of our neighbors, Babylon. It's the Old Testament version of love your neighbors or love your enemies. And so now we're going to read Daniel 11, and this is a wild chapter. I mean, this is one of those places that made me uncertain about whether or not I should ever preach this book. <laughs> uh, even some of the commentators said, yeah, I don't know how you're going to preach that one. I don't know how, how Daniel 11 can be used for a sermon. And so I'm going to try and prove them wrong. But this really is, and this is always the point of apocalyptic literature, it always comes with, this is true, God is sovereign, History has a direction, therefore, this is how you should live. Meaning, apocalypse isn't just about the knowledge, it's about knowing God and what he's up to and how to respond to what he's doing. And so I hope that comes out this morning, and if you have questions, as always, uh, please, please reach out. But let, Let's read through this in pieces. I'm going to start in verse 19, and we're going to go to, to 11.4, and then we'll pick it up later in the, in the sermon. But uh, Chapter 10.19. All right, just remember, that's what we looked at last time, is Daniel had an angel strengthen him uh, to show him love, to prepare him to see this vision. And that's what this angel says to Daniel, O man greatly loved, don't be afraid. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Now I return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side ex against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm him and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall rise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and be divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others. 
besides these. We'll pause there. This is God's word. It is true, trustworthy, and spoken to us who are greatly loved in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our good God, we, we ask today that you would, you would make us wise as Daniel was wise. Um, you teach us how to live by faith under your reign of grace. And just help us to see indeed that we have a hope that no amount of trouble or tribulation that suffering or suffering can take away from us. So may we leave here strengthened, standing firm, ready to do your will uh, because you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the, the phrases I've heard a lot, I've been talking about history in the last decade or so, is, um, you know, they're using history to justify how we live. Is I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And you've heard that before. Right? History being used as a motivation for love because in the past we failed to love all human beings. Um, Right? They're talking about slavery and racism and, and all that cruelty that, that we want to be better than those who came before. <laughs> Which has a whole particular view of history, and we can get into that. But what's great about Daniel 11 is God is actively showing Daniel, and he's actively showing us uh, where history is going. That we, we know where history is going, and therefore how we ought to live. Uh, that, that history is not endless cycles of suffering, right? Re- starting over and over again, right? Nor is history just going on an upward climb where everything's going to get better. Um, now we're, we're the same today as the people we're going to read about in, these, in this chapter. And nor does history just begin by accident and end with the dying of the light of the sun where it goes from nothing to nothing and it's just... Right? You remember those graphs in math class, right? The dot on either end. It just comes to a step. You know, what we're shown and what we're going to be shown is that all of history is rushing headlong from creation to, towards God's appointed end. That's the phrase that's going to be used. He has a plan. And his plan has to do with resurrection and Jesus. And that's the confidence I hope we leave here with today that when you see this picture that God is the God of history, um, you leave here in rejoicing that you have a hope and a security that no suffering can take away and that God is at work in the midst of it. And that teaches us how to live. And so let's, we're only going to get through the part of chapter 11. We'll get to the Antichrist next week and resurrection. But this is much more helpful than I expected than when I, <laughs> when I started my preparation. Let's start here. I think this will be a good place to start. You start with the problem of history. And I think that's what you get in verses 2 through 4. The problem of history for every person. The problem of history for the, if you're an emperor or just an ordinary person trying to survive under the cruelty of the various empires. It's the problem of hope. Life comes to an end rapidly from the perspective of history. Right, if you're looking at two through four, you got this great king after Persia who says he shall rise, he shall rule with great dominion, he'll do whatever he wants, and then his kingdom's going to be broken, divided into four parts. His kids get nothing; it just gets plucked up and scattered. All right, and we've already talked about this king before in chapter eight. He, this is Alexander the Great. Um, 
This is that Greek king who followed the Persian Empire, who arose rapidly and conquered the known world. I mean, it's fascinating to compare how the history talks about him with what the Bible says about him. Right? I mean, this guy, had, you go to Amazon, just, go, just look it up. He's got movies made about him. He's got biographies that are hundreds of pages long about his greatness. I mean, one biographer said, this guy was skilled in the art of self-promotion. <laughs> he liked himself. He was good at it. It's a man who did whatever he wanted. He took what he wanted by all human metrics. He went from bottom to the top. He was powerful, successful, influential, and yet the cruel joke of history for every human being is no matter how great you get, all your hard work goes to someone else. He never got the rest to enjoy it, and that's kind of the commentary we get here. He had anxious toil, then death. He was a success in life. In death, he was a failure. Not even his children got his inheritance. And so that, my friends, I think is what this is getting after. Echoes of Ecclesiastes, right? If some of you guys have been with, with Daryl and the, and the Cutler Small Group, this is the problem of history. The difficulty of any success is always marked by how quick in history it comes to an end. It strips away hope. Uh, Ecclesiastes 2.22 would say, What do you get? What does a man get for all the toil, all the anxious striving for which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind can't rest. This too is a vapor, meaningless. You see the problem of history that we're getting at, right? Is every generation, that's, that's the, what you're going to get hit with later in, in the chapter is these kings and kingdoms just keep coming and going, coming and going, and the repetition has just been going on for centuries. And you're going, what's the point? Where's it going? Where's the hope? Right? What is all our, your, endless slaving away at work for if there's no glorious end to history? Right. I mean, here's one writer talking about work. This is very cheery. It's very Ecclesiastes-like, so just trigger warning. <laughs> it says, work by very nature is violent. It's violent to the spirit and your body. It causes ulcers. It causes accidents. It causes nervous breakdowns and anger, and sometimes people kick their dog. Right. It, above all, it's about daily humiliations. To survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded among us. Right. So what do you do with that? I mean, Alexander the Great rises up. He does whatever he wants. But it's still just a vapor, a breath, in the way the Bible tells the story. He gets two lines. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's asking you, what is your hope? And if you put your hopes in your work, in your career... And that is where you get your life from. Um, you're gonna, you're gonna feel that disappointment, right? I mean, I know most of us can't relate to this ancient world-conquering emperor, right? I don't see you guys riding your horse, charging with a sword. But this is life in the city of man, where I want the freedom to do what I want with my life. That's the dream. Alexander the Great, the way his life is described, that's everyone's dream, is it not? To have the power, the freedom to do what I want. 
to make my life how I see fit, to create my own hopes, my own dreams. Right? And what happens is the same thing that happened to him. A whole lot of unasked for suffering and then death. It's gone. Or for us in this last year, anxiety, uh, just confusion, things change. That's what suffering is. It's the stripping away of your hope. This is the problem of history, and we're going to keep going here. We're all dealing with it in some way, right? And so if you're not a Christian, I would, I would really press you to think about why you need a hope that is outside of this world to deal with your story and your suffering. Right? Because the secular way says we don't know what happens at the end. There is no end. It just stops. Or maybe it's this mysterious light, and it, it's whatever you want it to be. Right? But, so that means right now you've got to cultivate your own meaning, your own hope. And that's, that's the cultural air we live in every day that, that we're always saying, you determine the end and how to get there. And history is impersonal, so you make it as personal and as good as you can make it because this is all you got, which works for a little while until su- suffering ruins it. <laughs> right? I mean, here, I'll put it this way. One historian wrote that uh, humans are a little more than a chance deposit on the surface of the earth. You get that? We're just carelessly thrown up between two ice ages by the same forces that rust iron and ripen corn. See how impersonal that is? Which means, if that's true, Alexander the Great, 33 years of success no different than a piece of corn being planted in the ground here for a season falling off decaying gone right. there's no hope self-created hope will not in the long run make us strong to face the worst trouble to persevere because suffering strips away those things we, we depend on so what we're called to do I think this is what Daniel's doing here in verses 4 is he's, we're being shown that we need something concrete to stand on in an ever-changing world, right? To compare these impressive earthly kingdoms of old, Babylon, Persia, Greece, that are just a breath and these things, these kings are constantly changing to what Daniel says is coming, which is a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, will never fade away, Daniel 2.44 says, especially in comparison to Alexander, the kingdom shall never be left to another people. Right? When you get this inheritance, you're part of the kingdom. It's yours forever. Right? It'll break in pieces. All these other kingdoms bring them to an end, but God's kingdom shall stand forever. And what we're called to do is see that Daniel's being shown that a hope is coming that no amount of trouble can take away hope that is unconquerable, that, that helps you stand as more than a conqueror, as Paul would say, even in the midst of great suffering. Right? Because the wise live in light of God's promised eternity. The wise live for a kingdom that endures. The wise live based on what is true, trustworthy, and enduring. I mean, that's St. Augustine 
would say that those who know the most peace are those who have based their lives on what is unchanging. Right? He's talking about the living God and his kingdom. And so that's my question, right? Do you look at the problem of history? Have you been looking at it? Have you been looking at God's kingdom, standing on it, even as, as the world swirls around you in your own particular troubles? Your suffering is calling you to look away from your troubles, to look towards what's to come, to give you strength to stand in the moment. Right? So I think that's part of, part of the picture here is you can just do some comparison between God's kingdom that will not be given away to Alexander the Great and these other kings that just you get bombarded with. Now, let's look at the next section, verses 5 to 35. We're going to read it out loud together. If you haven't read this ahead of time, you're going to be normal if you go get done and say, I don't know what just happened. Daniel, when we got done, he's seeing this for the first time. He says, I didn't understand. <laughs> Which is why he keeps thinking about it and asking. Right? And what's, it gets more complicated because I don't know anyone out in this room including myself, that's just an ancient Middle Eastern historian running through, through your mind with all the ancient Seleucid kings and, and the Egyptian kings, right? Unless that's your particular PhD, <laughs> this is going to be foreign. But to get oriented, it really helps to know in this section, the way Daniel is being shown history is from the perspective. The center of the compass is Israel, the glorious land. All right, so I'm just giving you some clues as we read it. Right? God's eyes are on his loved ones. God's eyes, his plan, is centered on Israel to bless the nations. All right, so when it talks about the kings of the north, it's using Israel as the center point. What's north of Israel? It's Syria. So we're going to hear about the kings of the north and the Syrian kings. When it talks about the kings of the south, it's down here. It's talking about Egypt. And, and history tells us that the kingdoms of Syria... And the kings of Egypt went to battle. These things actually happened as God foretold them. And then we're going to see, too, in the midst of all this, as this theological history just flies you through some centuries, it's trying to get you to trust in a God who sees and knows the future. And then it always inserts, here's then how you should live. So let's read it. This is God's word. Um, and then we'll, we'll dissect it here. It says in verse 5, after, this is after Augustine, the, the great king of Greece. It says, Then the king of the south shall be strong. But one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. 
His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall be cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift up themselves in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, nor even as best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall utterly be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from that time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. He shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his father nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his, arm, his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and she, he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall come, shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. 
He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. For it still awaits the appointed time. Quite a ride. Feels a little bit like going through that tunnel in, in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, right? All the pictures and stuff just flying by and I don't know what I'm seeing. All right? And so what I want to do is we could break down all the kings and get, get really historical. And if you want those charts, I will gladly send them to you. So I, I, it's helpful to see that there is a way to map this prophetic vision of the future onto the actual history that took place in order to build up your confidence that God's word is true, it is trustworthy, and this was foretold, and it happened as it was foretold. Right? I mean, if you want to know who these kings are, you got different Syrian kings, different Egyptian kings. But what's clear, and I, I hope you heard some of the echoes of chapter 8 at the end there, right? In verse 21, it describes the little horn of chapter 8 that we talked about. Of, of this king, Antiochus Epiphanes, who brings the abomination of desolation, who ends worship in the temple. He trashes the temple. Right? So this is just giving more details of what the time's going to be like when he does what the Hebrew people would have been horrified by, which is stop worship. And he gets help from God's own people, people who forsake the covenant. But what I want to do, I think, is take the lessons of how God works and, and apply this to us. I, th I think it'll be really helpful. Because did you see how all these kings just fly by in a blur, and it's so fast that you don't even know who you're... T I'm reading it, and I don't know who I'm talking about in the moment. Like, you have to slow down and get out a pencil and, and make charts and do those things to figure out which king we're talking about and when. And I think that's the point. Their story is not that different than Alexander the Great. They have plots, they have plans, they plunder, they pillage, they do violence, they succeed, and then just like that, they're gone again. Their plan comes full force running into God's appointed end, and they're just a part of the journey. Right? And one of the the applications I think we can take away from that is you see these blurry visions of kings and disappearing kingdoms. It's designed, as is the whole book of Daniel, to do war with our own temptation to put all of our hope in politics. Right? To put all of our hope in a particular political leader. To do what we want. Right? I mean, I found great comfort in some ways of seeing that they're fighting the same battles we are, right? I mean, all, think about all the tension we saw on January 6th, the, the shock and anger of seeing the Capitol building stormed, and, and even more so seeing Christian flags waved, uh, Christian t-shirts, right? This unholy alliance between a violent power grab and Jesus, 
Chapter 11 shows us it's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, verse 14 says, In many times, in those times, many will rise against the king of the south. And then it says to Daniel, right, the violent among your own people, the people of the covenant, God's people, they're going to join the violence, thinking they're doing God's will, trying to fulfill a vision, this vision, trying to bring about the Messiah, trying to set up God's kingdom. But they shall fail. I mean, the temptation, especially as you just imagine what life must be like for the people of Israel as all these, these battles are swirling around them and they're stuck in the suffering in the middle, right? When, when life doesn't go the way we want to, the temptation is always to look for a political human leader because, because we're afraid, right? Get anxious. There's real injustice out there. Right? And if you're wrestling with this, I mean, don't, don't hold it in. Come talk to us. We'd love to talk about it. And what I would do is, is prescribe more psalms and less news intake. Right? You know, it says in verse 14, they lifted themselves up, which in the scriptures is always a, a prideful act. Right? And psalm 7 says it the opposite way, as David is getting stomped. He says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies because you have appointed a judgment. Right? Do you see the, the difference in attitude? Right? We don't lower our expectations of, of justice and mercy from our leaders, but we don't lift up ourselves violently, thinking we're doing God's will. Right? Lifting ourselves up, as we're going to see, that's the way of the Antichrist. Um, it's the opposite of Jesus, the Jesus way, who humbled himself, who the Son of Man was at the top, came not to be served, but to serve. Right, so that's one lesson you can take from this chapter. And second, you can see how evil is leashed to God's purposes, meaning he, he is working through these bad decisions, through the evil of these kings, in order to bring about his plan for history, which is for Jesus to come and the resurrection. And right, if you look at verse 27... I thought this was fascinating. In verse 27, it says, you have these two kings. They've got their plans, their hearts set on evil. They're sitting and talking to each other and lying out their ears, right? They all have these great plans. They're, they're using doublespeak and deceit. And it says, you know what? It doesn't matter. It's to no avail because the end is yet to be at the time appointed. God's purposes still stand in the midst of even these great evils. Right? And, and that's, that's really helpful. That's the point of this chapter is that there is an appointed end to history and no amount of plotting, planning, or working of violence can thwart God's plan to set up his king Jesus and to renew and resurrect all things. Even the evil in the hearts of leaders have reins on them the living God. They're limited and directed. Right? That's the perspective here. God is the author of history. Right? That blurry vision of kings then leads to the, the practical section in verses 32 to 35, right, of how to live during turbulent times. 
um, right? It gives a portrait and, and what to do, and it says, the people who know their God, in verse 32, shall stand firm and take action. Right? We've talked about how not to live. This, this says, this is how the wise, those who have the same spirit, the spirit of Daniel, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, here's how you live when life is crazy, when, when the political kingdoms are plotting and you're suffering. All right, and that's just, it's good counsel. Whenever you're reading apocalyptic literature, when you're in Revelation, when you're in Daniel, you're in Ezekiel, in these weird places, look for the commands. There's always a, this is true, therefore, here's how you live. All right, so what do we do? Here's the summary, right? Stand firm or stand strong, which is a way of saying don't be moved. Uh, don't get dragged away by the, the waters of culture. Stand in the Lord. Uh, know your God. The, the secret to standing firm is to know the character of God. Um, and it's, it's an intimate knowledge. It uses the, the same word used when it says, Adam knew his wife and they had a child. Right? It's, it's more than just facts. It's life lived together in union, walking side by side. It's, it's knowing God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then when you find yourself in the mess, turning and, and saying, oh God, you are faithful. You carried me through. And because I've experienced that, I know you. I can stand in this moment because you've carried me safe thus far. Right? That kind of knowledge, it's practical knowledge. It's, it's a knowing. And because you know God, then it says take action. And it doesn't mean grab a sword or fight for power. To take action, it just simply says do <laughs> in the Hebrew. It's one word, just do, which is another way of saying, I think, God, now that I know you, I'm going to do your will. You, you still seek to be faithful with boots on the ground in the ordinary life, to pray like Jesus did. Um, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Right. And so it goes on. Keep, let's keep going here, right? The wise stand firm. They know God. They take action. Um, and the wise know that because of what's being shown here in chapter 11 and because of Jesus, uh, they're well aware that these political chaos is just how the kingdom of God comes. The kingdom of God comes through suffering. The kingdom of God comes through us being refined, being purified, being changed through the chaos that God leads us through. That's the perspective here, right? The wise aren't surprised by suffering because they know this is part of God's plan. They know this is part of God's plan to refine the wise. It's where your wisdom comes from. And when I look at our congregation and then the stories of suffering you told me when I was candidating, um, and then the stories of suffering you've told me since we've been here, that, that's equipped us with a particular wisdom that you wouldn't have chosen to go through yourself by any means. <laughs> if you had any other way out of it, we would have chosen a way out. But the suffering that God has led us through has equipped us to make others understand. And that's the perspective Daniel's being shown. The wise make others understand who God is, his character, 
and that there is a good purpose behind the trouble, right? To refine, to purify, to change us. Right? So let's use verses 32 to 35 to help us better know God. Right? What does he say about the wise? And what th- This is talking about the particular context, right? So let's do some historical context. It's talking about how these people lived under the, the brutal persecution and misery caused by Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who caused random massacres when he had a bad day, uh, who stomped out all worship, he went on the offensive against the temple, and he tried to make the Jews Greek by nature, right? He had a whole plan to change the Jewish culture, to, to do away with what the Bible says and to, to make them Greek like him. And so how did, how did the wise live under those pressure, under that pressure? And what's, what I find stunning is verse 35. It says, God allows the wise to stumble for a moment, Right? They'll receive a little help, but the purpose of the stumbling, here it is, it's a so that clause, that they might be refined, purified, and made white on the way to the appointed end, to the appointed time, waiting for Jesus. All right, we already saw that evil is leashed to God's purposes in the world, and here we're shown that even the stumbling, which can involve suffering, right, captivity, plunder, sword, and it can involve moral failure. Right? That too is leashed to God's plan to, to do good. Isn't that amazing? He lets his people stumble in order to refine them, in order to make them wise, in order to make others understand. I'm trying to connect all the dots here. And this is the character of the God you serve. That no amount of suffering can take away our hope, but nor can any amount of stumbling take away our hope. We're describing the perseverance of the saints in apocalyptic language. They shall stumble, but in the end they shall stand white as Jesus is white, purified, made clean, all their shame removed, all their sin forgiven. When you see Jesus, you should be like him. It's saying God is holding on to them even as, even as they bumble and stumble in the midst of the, the story. Right? Who are the wise? It's those who stumble, but it's also those who know their God. Right? So you want to be wise as Daniel is wise, if you want to be wise as Jesus is wise, if you want to be wise... The, the, the portrait of wisdom here in Daniel 11, right? you trust that God is at work in you on the good days and the bad. He's willing. You're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, saying, God, I don't know what I'm doing today. I need wisdom. But at the same time, you do that in the context of the God who's working in you to refine you, to give you the ability to do what he's calling you to do. So, this is giving you a perspective on life, isn't it? I mean, it, for Daniel, he's looking ahead. We're looking back, but it still gives you a theological perspective to put your, your stumbling, your suffering, your massive moral failures in the midst of God's plan to purify a people by taking them through fiery trials. 
to change us. And he's even accounted for the fact that you will blow it and you will let him down. <laughs> That's extravagant grace. Right? I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. They refuse to, they refuse to back down and they say, yeah, we're, we're ready to be, our goose is ready to be cooked. <laughs> right? We got this. And, you know, whether we live or die, we're going to trust. It doesn't, doesn't change God's sovereignty. But verse 32 is saying, you may not have the courage that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will have. You might stumble. And God's going to use that to purify you, to change you, to, to teach you the ways of extravagant grace. And you get to know yourself through the process. And really, you, get, you better get to know the God who helps you stand strong. That perspective gives you great freedom. I know it sounds like God's in absolute control, and you say, am I a puppet? What is going on here? No, that's what gives you the freedom to get out of bed in the morning, to know that whether I succeed or fail, whether I choose the good or evil, I belong to him, and he's going to work through, through my foolishness because he's claimed me. That's the character of God we serve. Even the massive failures of some believers are chained to his purposes to bring about the appointed end to make Jesus known. So, evil out there can't separate you from God's plan, nor can evil in me separate you from God's plan for you to lead you to resurrection. You can see why Paul would say nothing in all of creation can separate the wise from the God who loves them, whether it's great suffering. And in this case, you know, the stumbling can be suffering or by flattery going along with whatever culture says and turning your back for a moment on the God whom you love. Isn't that what we sing? Right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Right? Prone to leave the God I love, bind my heart, take and seal it. So I don't, God, I need you to bind me. And this is showing you the binding. So what do you do with all that? Well, where's Jesus? I think this is where we'll end. There's a great illustration of the principle of how God works with the wise who stumble. And it's Peter. Peter who, in all, I love Peter because he's brash. You know exactly what's on his mind. And he thinks he's great. And Jesus keeps showing him otherwise in order to train him and refine him and prepare him for the plans God has for him. Right? You remember Peter who stumbled and failed, who swore to Jesus, I will be with you unto death. I will never fail you. I'm going to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I got this. Right? Peter, who, when Jesus is being arrested, draws a sword and cuts off the ear. He rises up and chooses violence. Right? He blows it. Right? But it's also the Peter who wrote 1 Peter, which is full of immense wisdom, which is where we're going to go after Daniel, uh, to apply the theology of Daniel to us as Christians. Right? The, the Peter who realized after the fact that he had to go through the purifying furnace of shame and failure in order to point others to the grace of Jesus. He had to learn it firsthand. He had to stumble. 
Because right? you remember, this is what happens, right? He denies Jesus three times before Jesus is uh, put, put to death. And when the rooster crows three times, just as Jesus predicted, he falls apart emotionally. And, and what happens is Jesus is not done with him yet, which is a, that's the story and hope of grace, right? Jesus finds him after the resurrection and asks him those three questions. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Of course, the third time, Peter's exasperated. Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Which is a way of restoring him. See, what, this is what the cross and resurrection does, is it takes those who appear foolish, equips them with God's wisdom, Jesus himself, and he sends them out. And because of Jesus' death and his forgiveness, God can use the fiery furnace of failure and stumbling to shine a bright light on the glory of his grace and mercy, which helps you stand firm. Right? That's, that's the message of Daniel 11. No amount of trouble can snatch you from his hands. Jesus, the Messiah, holds forever those whom he loves. That's good news. Right? I mean, Daniel is, is being shown with us that nothing in all of creation can thwart God's plans to make his blessings know as far as the curse is found. We haven't got to chapter 12, which is all one vision that ends with resurrection of all things. But what I think you're meant to do is, is to see that the appointed end in this vision is Jesus. The wise were used, and even their stumbling were used to bring about him. And listen to Jesus' words, and this is how we'll end. This is what he says to us in Revelation 1, right? Don't be afraid. I'm the first. I'm the last. I'm your creator. I'm God's appointed end. <laughs> I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Don't be afraid when you don't know what's going on because Jesus went through the fiery furnace of death he was perfected, purified, if you will, through suffering so that we sinners would know for certain that even in our stumbling, we are held on to by his finished work, which is God's appointed end. Therefore, stand firm, know your God, and you are then sent out to make others understand this plan. And when you do, and you do so without grumbling and complaining, and say, this is God's plan, right? Paul says, you'll shine like the stars in heaven. Echoes of Daniel. Right? That's our vision. You comfort others with the comfort you have received in the midst of trouble, and you tell others about Jesus. May he give you the strength to do so. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the hope in this passage, we thank you that even if we don't understand all the details, we know that you are at work in us to work out your good pleasure and your good plan. Above all, we thank you for Jesus, and I pray for those of us who are wrestling with the, the stumbling that comes through running into suffering and we're confused, uh, Lord, that you would give them peace, knowing that you are at work in them. And for those of us who are wrestling with very real failure that keeps rearing its ugly head, our sin, your spirit would help us put it to death and above all trust that uh, it's helping us see the beauty of your grace 
and to grow our love for you who loves us as we are, even as you're content, not content to leave us as we are. So use the fiery furnaces of suffering to change us to be more like Jesus, we pray. Amen.